to Trinity Dallas. We pray that this message will be a source of encouragement and hope in your life today. Enjoy today's message. Y'all remember that movie, The Hunt for Red October? I think Pastor Matthews watched that one too many times. He said his name was Alexander Popoloff. It's Alexander Filipoff. That's all right. I think Popoloff was one of the characters in The Hunt for Red October. Are you glad you came today? I'm glad you're here, and I want to welcome all those of you that are joining us online. Thank you for being here with us, and for all of you that are here in person, this is the last Sunday of January. We're starting today a series, and the next four messages are going to be from the book of Colossians. Literally, one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's really an amazing book. <clears throat> we spend a lot of time uh, in the book of Ephesians really talking about the church, the body of Christ, the church of Christ, and, uh, and really just the, all the magnitude of the things that God has done for us. Colossians takes the opposite point of view. Colossians takes the look at not just the body of Christ, the church of Jesus, but the head of the church, the head, Jesus. And, and so uh, it's, it's an amazing book. It really talks about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It talks about who he is and who he is to us. And so it's an amazing, amazing book. And today we're going to start on chapter 1. The first half of the book of Colossians is doctrinal. It's teaching, just doctrinal teaching about Jesus. The second half of the book, chapter 3 and 4, is really more practical, how to live what you know, how to live what you know. Paul's intention is to show that Christ is the first and the foremost in everything and that our lives should reflect that reality. Now, let me just give you the caveat here. Paul never visited the church in Coloss. He never went there. Uh, this is a map of his third missionary journey. And uh, you can see he started up here in Antioch, Syria. There's two Antiochs in the, old, in the New Testament, but in Antioch, Syria. And then he went around through Cappadocia, Galatia, and into Asia Minor, and you can see there Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Hyopolis, and there's Laodicea, and then finally Coloss. If you follow the arrow above it, you see that it stops there in Ephesus. Paul spent 18 months, maybe two years in Ephesus. And it's from his location in Ephesus that we believe that perhaps somehow he made a connection with Epaphras, and that Epaphras had already started a church in Coloss. And so, uh, there you can sort of see where Coloss is. Today, there's not even an excavated village there. It's at the bottom of a mountain top, and uh, it's not even there anymore. Uh, but the things and the words that, that uh, Paul had to say to the Colossians are some of the most powerful penned in the Bible describing Jesus, description of Jesus. Colossus was a small town. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So you can think about that in terms of getting in the car and driving out to Mineral Wells. And there's a way out there. And so uh, in Paul's day, it was an insignificant market town. 
In fact, we have no record of the establishment of the Colossian church. In fact, Colossus is not even mentioned in the book of Acts. It is certain that Colossus was, was most likely evangelized during Paul's extended stay in Ephesus. The nearest neighbor to Colossus is Laodicea. Laodicea is famous for its mention in, uh, in the revelation of Jesus. And so Laodicea is about 10 miles away from Colossus. And another little town that also had a church in it was Hierapolis. It was about 13 miles away. And so both of these cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis, are mentioned in the letter as having communities of believers. Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome. The immediate occasion for the writing of this letter was the arrival of Epaphras. Most of us don't study that name. Most of us maybe have never even heard of that name. But Epaphras was mentioned three times in the New Testament. Twice in this book, once in chapter 1, once in chapter 4, and then once in the book of Philemon, the little personal letter that Paul wrote to the young Philemon. And so Paul really has threefold purpose in writing the Colossians. Number one, he wants to express his love and his personal interest in the church. Paul loves this church. He has a personal interest in the church, primarily because Epaphras has either founded it or brought it to the state that it is today. And so he is very fond of Epaphras. And, uh, and so uh, he wants to express his personal interest and love for the church. Secondly, he wants to warn the church against going back to old pagan idols. And finally, he wants to refute the false teaching. Here's what's interesting about this. Epaphras meets Paul in Rome. He gives him a report of the church. We find this out in both Philemon and in Colossians chapter 4. And uh, he gives them a good report about the people there, but a warning of, and, and, and of impending problems, with particularly with idolatry. And so Paul then refutes this false teaching that's going on at Colossus. But the way he does it is masterful in that he never really point blank shoots it. He just takes and makes a masterpiece picture of the preeminence and the greatness of Christ and says, why would you take that idolatry over him? And that's the way he battles the false teaching. And so he refutes the false teaching, confronting the negative false teaching with a positive setting forth of the supremacy and the soul sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty powerful. So if you brought your Bible, or perhaps you want to follow along on your uh, phone or your notebook, just don't be looking at Instagram while I'm preaching, please. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, he makes a greeting. Paul, he's the one who wrote the letter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So he's in prison in Rome, and not only is he there in prison, but he has Timothy close by. It's certain, for certain, that Timothy spent at least some times in prison, but that Timothy was like a son to Paul. Timothy traveled with him. And, and Timothy was a, not only a pastor, but an apostle in his own right. And so Paul is writing with Timothy. He calls him our brother, but he's really a son to Paul. 
He says, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossus. This letter has uh, a point. This letter has an audience that he's shooting for. I love it here. It says, to the saints in Colossus. The Catholic Church mentions saints in the terms of a big S. Saint Joseph, Saint Mary, Saint. But the Bible paints a different picture, that every born-again believer is a saint before God. You're a saint. If you're born again here today, then you are a saint. So this letter is not only then to those who are in Coloss, but to all who are saints and to all who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we give thanks to God, our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He begins with a prayer of giving, of thanksgiving. And uh, it's interesting that he begins his letter with giving of thanks, and he will end it with the giving of thanks. That this was really, really important to Paul, because he knows that gratefulness and the giving of thanks uh, is the pathway into the throne room of God. And it's really important discipline that we learn and that that discipline then become a heartfelt emotion, that we really are grateful. We're really thankful. We don't just pin that because it's the cool thing to pin or to say that because it might be the religious thing to say, but we really have a gratefulness and a thankfulness in our heart. So he begins with thanksgiving for the Colossians. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you. I think that's... Pretty big statement. I don't think Paul was a liar. I think he's telling the truth here when he says, I, we were always praying for you. Never been there. We don't know you face to face, but we've received from Epaphras good word about you. So we're praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, we heard that you love in Jesus that you've been faithful to Jesus, that you put your faith in him, and also that you have love for one another. We, we've got the story on that because verse 5 of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Yeah, you've heard this. You know that there is a hope, a heavenly hope for everyone. And he said, you're not going to hear it, but you've already heard it, Right? Before, in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And so he's saying here that this gospel, this good news has come to you, right? Just like it is in all the world. Now, that's pretty interesting. It's almost a prophetic statement. But this gospel has come to you just also in all the world. And how do we know it's working? Because it's bringing forth fruit just like it is among you since the day you heard it and the day you knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras. We know he's the guy that told you about this. He's the guy. He names him here. He says he's our dear fellow servant who is faithful. Our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Epaphras. So his description of Epaphras is, is that he's our dear fellow servant. We're serving together, in other words. 
We have a heart for him. We, he's dear to us. We have a, an intimate relationship with him. And he's on the same plane as we are. He's a fellow servant and is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And you see here in chapter 4 when we get to that and also in Philemon, here's some of the things that are said about Epaphras that are significant. He calls him here our dear fellow servant, but he also calls him a faithful minister of Christ, a servant of Christ Jesus, someone who's always wrestling in prayer and working hard. The brief sketch that Paul provides shows that he thought highly of this follower of Christ and fellow laborer. Epaphras, he had demonstrated a strong faith, a rich prayer life, a boldness in sharing the gospel, even at the risk of his own suffering and his deep care for those in whom he had invested spiritually. He may not be the first person that comes to mind of a biblical character in the New Testament, but he was a powerful worker for the cause of Christ, establishing churches, raising up leaders, making disciples through places that Paul never, ever went. He's an amazing guy. And so he says, hey, verse 7, as you learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. He declared to us the love that we have for one another and the love that you have for God. So Paul takes this thanksgiving now that he's shared, and he turns it into a prayer. In verse 9, he says, for this reason. For what reason? For the reason that you've heard the gospel. For the reason that it's bearing fruit in your life. For the reason that you know the grace of God and the truth of God. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, heard about you knowing all this stuff, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So this apostolic prayer to the, to the church in Coloss has several different points to it. Paul's first point is, is that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you'd know what the will of God is. And I think it's significant and got to understand that Paul wants this to happen in the medium of prayer. It's in our prayer time. It's in our time of seeking the Lord. It's in our time of being alone with God that we find out what the will of God is for our life. Man, we want to go to seminars. We want to, uh, somebody to tell us, somebody to show us, somebody to help us. But the help, the telling, the showing comes through prayer that when we pray, God reveals himself to us. So Paul's natural uh, movement about prayer is to pray that you would know the will of God. How are you going to know it? By spending time with God. That's See, that's why you are a saint with a small ass. You don't have to go to an intermediary anymore to find out what God's word is for you. We don't have to do that. We can go straight into the throne room ourselves and find that out. The sad thing is, is that most Christians never find their way there. Because it's easier to ask somebody else than it is to ask God. And so Paul's praying here. He's praying that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That we'd have the wisdom that we needed. The wisdom is the know-how, you know, that we need to move from knowing what God's will is to doing God's will. That we'd have 
the wisdom and the know-how. Verse 10 says that we would have a walk that's worthy of the Lord. So there, there is a progression of things here that Paul begins to unfold as a result of us spending time in prayer. <laughs> it's a, pro pro a progression, if you will. It begins with knowing the will of God. Then it moves to having a walk worthy of the Lord. That means that we're living righteously, that we're fully pleasing Him, self-understood, that we're being fruitful in every good work, and that we're increasing in the knowledge of God. We're growing in our knowing God. We're not staying stagnant. By the way, there's no such thing as just being stagnant in your relationship with God. You're either growing or you're dying. Paul said, I pray that you grow in the knowledge of God. And uh, he says that you would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We want to have the strength of God in our life so that we can heal the sick. We want to have the strength of God in our life so that we can uh, proclaim with a loud voice and with a confidence. We want to have the strength of God in our life so that we can... Uh, you know, so that we can live for the will of God. But he said that the strength of God comes with all might, according to his glorious power, for, for something. What? For all patience and long-suffering with joy. That God wants to strengthen you so you would be patient and have joy while you're at it. That's what his strength's for. So you would suffer long. That's long-suffering. You would suffer long and have patience, he says, with joy. Verse 12, here he, are, here he is again, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So we're strengthening all might for patience, for long-suffering, and then we should give thanks. See, giving of thanks and having an attitude of gratitude won't always change your environment or your situation or your problem. But what it will do is change you. It'll give you the patience that you need to ride through the problem, right? Yeah. To get through the challenge. And so one of the things that I think Paul majors on in most all of his epistles is this whole idea of thankfulness. It transforms not necessarily your circumstances, but it transforms you. It transforms you. It puts everything in the right alignment, knowing that it's not my power or my might that I'm going to need to get through. It's his power and his might. And, and so being grateful, giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because he's qualified us. And we're going to see several things here that he's done for us. Not that we did for ourselves. He did for us. He's qualified us to do what? To be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So he's qualified us to take our part, to take our share, to take our place at the table of God. He's not only has he qualified us, but he has also, verse 13, delivered us from the power of darkness and he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his light, of his love. And so not only has God qualified us, but watch this. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. Not he's going to, not he wants to, not he's thinking about it. He's done it. And he's not only delivered us, but he's conveyed us, brought us right into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? 
So it says, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the sacrificed blood of Jesus uh, and uh, the forgiveness of sins. So he's forgiven our sins. So that's a lot to be thankful about. <laughs> that's a lot to be grateful for. And, and that's a lot to really to understand that God has done everything necessary for you to have an intimate, meaningful relationship with God the Father. He's done it. So, so he begins then by paint like an artist. He's painting a picture with some words. And I'm sure that as Paul was pinning this, there's no question about all of it being anointed by God, God's spirit, God's presence writing through him. But I would imagine he gave a pause to say, how can I make these words, these uh, Latin words, how can I make them so big that they can express the bigness of God? How can I do that? Well, he takes a good shot at it. Watch this, verse 15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, take a look at me. Because if you've seen me, you've seen him. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? He is the perfect likeness of God. Not just physically, but spiritually. In the mind, the will, and the emotions. He is the perfect likeness of the perfect God, right? He is the manifestation of God's nature. He is the being perfectly revealed God in Christ Jesus. And so he is the image of the invisible God. Secondly, he is the firstborn over all creation. You might want to take a pencil and just put a circle around the word all. It's mentioned 28 times in the book of Colossians. All. Now watch how he uses this word all. For by him, verse 16, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, principalities or power, all things were created through him and for him. How much was created through him and for him? All. All, all things. All things that are created. All things that are in the heavens created for him and through him. All things that are on the earth created by him, through him, for him. All things that are visible. All things that are invisible. All the thrones of all the kings and queens who'd ever lived. All the dominions and governments that have ever existed. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. If you could look into heaven, perhaps, I, you know, I don't think I can say it big enough, but it's like these columns of millions of people surrounding the throne of heaven, and at the head of every one of those columns is the preeminent one, the Christ Jesus. And so he's before all things, right? He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He's so expansive that the universe exists inside him. <laughs> Think about that. 
It exists inside him. And, and so he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. I don't use that word a lot. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's just not occasion for me to think in terms of someone who's preeminent. I just, I, I just, I, you know, I, I, even when I see the king of England, I think, hey, there's people over him. I mean, it's just hard to think about what does it mean to be preeminent. So I went to my trusty and most favorite place to find what preeminent means. Google. <laughs> preeminent means it is the first in everything. Like this guy's greater than Tom Brady. He's the first in everything. Preeminent means he is the first in importance. He is over all kings, all dictators, all thrones, all principalities, all powers, all shake them. He's, over, he's, over, he's ahead of all those. He's the first in importance. He's the first in honor. He's the first in honor. I, I, back when Queen Elizabeth died, and uh, I was reading, uh, you know, some of the articles about her life, and one of the articles I was reading uh, was written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's head of the Church of England, and he was talking about some of her, his discussions with her. And at one point, she confessed to him, she said, I hope that Jesus will come back before I die. He said, why is that, Queen Elizabeth? Why is that? Here's what she said. So I could be first in line to cast my crown before him. She got it. He's preeminent. He's the first in importance, the first in honor, the first in exaltation. He is the greatest. He surpasses, surpasses all others. There is none like him. There's none that can stand in his shadow. There's none, none that operate outside of him because everything that you see, visible and invisible, was created by him, through him, and for him. And in him, all things, including the universe, consist. You can get Paul's excitement about writing this. I mean, how often do you get to use language like this? That he is the preeminent, preeminent one. And so in verse 19 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness of God should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you. He's talking about us now. You who were once alienated. We were enemies in our mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. <laughs> He's done something that no human being could do. 
He's reconciled you to God. And there's no longer a short account of your life. Now your account is up to date. It's ready for you to go into the throne of heaven. Go to the throne of heaven. So he says he reconciled by himself all things to himself, whether they were things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We were alienated. We were enemies by our mind, by wicked works, yet he's reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This, that's the end of what God wants to do. Jesus came to pay the price for our sin, the penalty of our sin. He came and paid the price for that penalty. He took the penalty upon himself. He paid the price. He made the ransom. He did all that so that you and I could have an intimate relationship with God, that Jesus might present us as holy, as clean, and he might redeem us by the power of his sacrifice that we might go right back and sit at the throne of heaven, to sit at the feet of God. It says here, <clears throat> he says, if indeed, verse 23, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Remember, he's writing this in prison. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. All the stuff that I've been through, all the things that I'm going through now, all the things that I will go through are not worthy to describe in light of him. <laughs> he makes it all worth it. He makes it all worth it. He says, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generation, but now has been re revealed to his saints. To them, verse 27 says, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a mystery. How does it happen when someone humbles their heart, invites Christ into their life, that they're transformed from the inside out? How does that happen? How is it that you can hear the gospel, the good news, and that you can embrace the good news, and you can ask God to make it real for you in your life, and you are born again of the Spirit of God. You become a new creation in Christ. Old things pass away. All things become new. It's a mystery. The mystery is that it's Christ in you. That when God looks from heaven, he sees through the lens of the shed blood of Jesus. What does he see? He sees you, a new creation in Christ. You who've been redeemed and been brought out of the muck and the mire and the death of sin and brought up into the table of God. It's a mystery, Paul says. But God willed to make known 
what the riches of this mystery is among the Gentiles. What is that mystery? This Christ in you. It's Christ in you. Take your hand, put it on your heart now. Christ in you is the hope of glory. All the things that have been necessary to do have been done for you. You didn't have anything to do with it. He justified you. He cleansed you. He washed you. He pulled your feet out of the miry clay and set you on a rock. He redeemed you. He reconciled you back to God. He caused you to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. He gave his life for you. And by exchanging his life, righteous and holy, for yours and mine, unrighteous, unholy, he forgave us of our sins and made us to be able to sit at the feet of God. And no longer we'd have to have a neighbor or a friend to go tell us what the word of the Lord is. But now we could know him personally and have a personal relationship with him. One of the things about the evangelical church, which we're a branch of, a part of, is that we sort of take that for granted, the transformation of our lives. And we think as long as we can sort of come in and adopt the language as our language and kind of adopt the style of worship as our style of worship without any real transformation, it's not going to bring you any kind of peace or satisfaction or joy or bring you any kind of intimacy with God. Because see, what Jesus died for is that Christ would live in you and through you. Verse 28 says, it's him we preach. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every person perfect in Christ Jesus. It's him we preach. No matter what your challenge is today, the solution to that challenge is Jesus. No matter what your problem is today, the solution to that problem is Jesus. No matter what your fear is today, the solution to that fear is Jesus. No matter what grief or pain you're dealing with today, the solution to that grief and pain is Jesus. No matter what trouble you're going through with a spouse or child or a parent, the solution to that issue is Jesus. No matter how sick you are in your body, the solution to heal that sickness is Jesus. He's not just the savior of the world, he's the healer of the church. Paul writes, it's him we preach. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna preach Jesus. It's him we preach. We're gonna warn everyone, warn you that it's not gonna be good enough or not gonna be meaningful enough or not gonna be satisfying enough just to adopt the language of a Christian and adopt some of the mannerisms or the style. What's going to make it real is when he transforms you from the inside out. 
that the heartbeat of Jesus Christ is to present you, the body of Christ, perfect, without spot, without blemish, that on the day that the bridegroom comes out of his palace, that he would meet a holy, spotless, blameless, worshiping, loving God with all our heart bride. That's what he's done. And so Paul says, look, I know there might be some heresy going on in Coloss. I know there might be some false teaching, maybe some people trying to go back a little bit to idolatry. But why would you want any of that when you could have him? That's his message. That's that's what the whole book of Colossians is about. Why would you want that when you could have him? Paul says to this end, what end? Presenting every man perfect in Christ. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. To the extent that it works and flows and has been revealed in me, I'm sharing it with you. And the suffering that I have to go through, the jail time that I'm now in, the pain that I've endured, the brokenness that has come to my body is all worth it. It's all worth it. If you just understand, at the end of the day, Christ is looking for a pure, spotless bride who loves him with all their hearts. That's us. That's us. Would you just close your eyes right there where you are? I want you to think about this. I've just, I've just read some phrases and some sentences out of Colossians chapter 1. But watch this. Christ is preeminent. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the creation. Creation came about by him, through him, and for him. He is before all things. In him all things exist. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. In him all the fullness of God dwells bodily and in him all things of all things he has the preeminence. That's him. The preeminent Jesus Christ. And we should be thankful and give thanks because he's done something. He's qualified us. He's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. He's delivered us. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. He's conveyed us. He conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. He's redeemed us through his shed blood at Calvary. He has forgiven us of our sins by paying the price for them. At the cross, Jesus Christ lives in you. What do you have to be afraid of? Let's all stand together. Just bow your head and close your eyes. 
you're here today and you just now realized that you've never really surrendered or submitted your heart to the preeminence of Jesus Christ and you'd like to submit your heart and surrender your life to Him. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's coming back to Him today. If that's you, I'm not asking you to move. I'm asking you just to raise both hands and put both hands in the air quickly. That's you. Just both hands in the air. High as you can get them. High as you can get them. Put both hands in the air. Now, Father, you see these around the room. Lord, you see them, Lord, who are saying that today, Lord, they desire to humble their hearts and to invite Christ into their lives, the preeminent one. And they're asking today, Lord, that you transform them. Lord, that coming out of this service, they wouldn't walk out the same way they came in. But they have a knowledge, not only of your will, but it is Christ in them that is the hope of glory. If you believe that, say amen. Well, pretty good start to Colossians, isn't it? It's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? Come on, let's give the Lord a hand. We're so grateful. Fantastic. Brother Sasha, thank you for being here today. There is a reception for him in the back. Anybody like to meet him? We'd love for you to take some time and meet Sasha. And uh, hey, it's thrilling to be here and today. This is a great way to start kind of the springy winter months, right? Get in here and get in the Word. Amen? Next week, Colossians 2. We'll see you then. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to dive deeper into today's message, go to trinitydallas.com forward slash sermons to receive your copy of the notes. If today's message encouraged you, do someone else a favor and share it with them. Also be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. A special shout out to all those who partner with us through their giving. Your contributions have enabled us to touch the lives of people in our community, as well as around the globe. Visit us at trinitydallas.com forward slash give to partner with what God is doing through Trinity Dallas. 